Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We know that each one of us comes to you individually, but you, want, you have us gather so that we can learn more. We can learn from each other. We can learn from the Spirit as it, as it, as it joins us, Lord. So we ask that the Holy Spirit be here today and that, that our hearts and ears and eyes be open to the message you will be sending. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's worship our Lord. So you're, each of you are familiar with the miraculous ways that God has of weaving the tapestry of life before our eyes. Um, our Cheryl, you know, does these beautiful things with her sewing machine. God is weaving things together. And oftentimes, we will see how he will take one thing at a church service and he weaves it into something else. He's already planned it, and we didn't know. So, those of you who missed Sunday school today will not know how much this little devotion completely substantiates what we just studied in Sunday school, and it weaves together with perfect harmony. The spirit of thankfulness. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Philippians 4.12. And we all know that we're hitting different situations in our lives right now. I think of surgery, I think of the suffering of loss and the sickness. And I mean, I look out at my friends' faces and each one is struggling today to reach for that contentment that God would have for you. But this is just a beautiful message. Some years ago, I visited a man who was wealthy and successful, the envy of all of his friends and business associates. But as we talked, he broke down in tears, confessing that he was a miserable man inside. Wealth had not been able to fill the empty place in his heart. A few hours later, I visited another man who lived only a few miles away. His cottage was humble, and he had almost nothing in the way of the world's possessions. Yet his face was radiant as he told me about the work he was doing for Christ and how Christ had filled his life with meaning and purpose. I went away convinced that the second man was really the wealthy man. Although he had very little, he had learned to be thankful for everything God had given him. A spirit of thankfulness makes all the difference. So our hope for today, worldly wealth can never compare with the treasures found in Christ. When we decide to walk with Jesus, our hearts can be filled to overflowing, even when our bank accounts are not. And I will add to that, even when our days feel a little lean and as though they lack. Let's take hold of the Jesus who loves us and he will fill every, every need to abundance. Will the circle be unbroken? This is certainly um, a lively song.
sometime back in the 80s, I can't remember just when, myself and three other men decided that we would go on a fasting backpack weekend. Sounds kind of silly. <laughs> but we had the heart to seek God and to understand what he had for us to do. So there we were in the Trinity Alps in Northern California at about 9,000 feet. And I then, we all separated on the next day, and I walked from light till dark, carrying my Bible, and wondering when the Lord would speak to me. Well, I finally got so tired, I sat down under a bush and fell asleep, woke up with ants on me. That got my attention. And I continued to wound up by a stream. I sat by the stream and opened my Bible. And the Lord took me to this scripture that I'm going to read. And it's been uh, with me ever since, especially the, the last part. This is from 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. It's been a good thing to carry with me. If you'd like to stand with me, we can all recite the Lord's Prayer together. If you feel up to the standing, if you don't, just stay down. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Say hello to one another. We're ready. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story, because I know it's true, it satisfies my longings, as nothing else can do. Jesus and His love, I love.
message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story. Testament reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mystery plan to me. As you read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news shall share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we now can come boldly and confidently into God's presence. You join me in the responsive reading. God of steadfast love, you sent your Son to be the light of the world, saving, saving people everywhere from sin and death. As Anna gave thanks for the freedom he would bring, and Simeon saw in him the dawn of redemption. Complete your purpose once made known in him. Make us the vessels of his light. Let all the world may glory in the splendor of your peace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the gifts we give today, we give them openly, we give them with a free, open heart, and we give them, you told us we needed to give back. But Lord, it's not just because you told us, it's because we know the value of coming to know you and the value of reaching out to others and sharing your word with others, Lord. So we ask that the gifts we get bring 
may be wisely used to help others come to know Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to rise for the doxology. Well, I want to continue on um, the theme that we've been talking about, uh, um, going back to Genesis. And the theme of this sermon is that God is, Christ has turned banishment from God's presence into joyful acceptance into his presence. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk about the banishment from the garden, and then we'll talk about how Christ has, is the answer for that and what that means. But I want to go back to um, and just pick up verses 16 through 19 for context, although we're not going to spend much time on those verses because we've already talked about those. But it says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Now these are the, the consequences now of Adam and Eve disobeying God, <laughs> believing, the, uh, believing Satan, and believing themselves, really, and, um, and then here's what's going to happen. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And then the verses we're going to concentrate on today are these uh, following ones. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, would somebody like to pray for us? Uh, pray for our time? Pray God's presence here? Any volunteers? Thank you, Linda. Heavenly Father, we humbly come gather us together according to your good purpose and your willingness to continue to build our body, build our faith, heal our, our difficulties, and guide us in your righteousness. Thank you for Pastor Frank. I ask you to bless him as he brings forth this word. Amen. So we find then the consequences of sin. And the consequences of sin for the woman was, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Um, and so really two things. One is that she will, uh, the, the um, pain in childbirth would increase, and the, her desire would be for her husband, and he will rule over her. Uh, we're not going to spend much time on this, but um, verse 20, we pick it up again. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Okay? So to Eve then is given uh, this privilege of being, it, it, the whole human race then ascended from Adam and Eve uh, as the progenitors of the whole human race. And the, and the meaning of Eve means living or the first woman. Kind of interesting, it's, it's Hava in, uh, in Hebrew and in Turkish, it's Hava. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that it carried over into the, into the Turkish that, uh, 
Uh, we, it's not carried over into English. We don't call Eve Hava, we call her Eve. Uh, but it does show up in, uh, in, in probably, probably in, uh, in Arabic as well, although I didn't check that. But, um, so the whole idea is that um, there's consequences of her sin, and then there's consequences of sin for the man as well. And that we, we just talked about, uh, that Adam, because he listened to his wife and ate from the tree, um, that cursed is the ground, that there's going to be, it's going to be difficult. He is going to, uh, there's going to be difficulty in what was before easy. You just go up and pick from the, you know, from the tree and everything was provided for him. Now it's going to be more difficult. Because they had sought autonomy, life would be more difficult for both of them. That's the whole nature of sin. So the first human beings rejected God, the one who had made them, and who loved them dearly. And so notice here, I want you to notice here, the stark contrast with a secular worldview which postulates that men ascended from lower life, lower life forms, okay? Um, and, I, you know, I listen to this all the time. You hear it in commercials, and just everywhere you turn, there's this whole, this whole concept that we're all getting better, and you know that um, that we and that someday we're going to overcome all of these things and and produce this perfect race, this utopia. Well, guess what? Uh, we can't produce utopia if there's sin in our hearts, and and the Bible has it right. And and I'm so aware of this, having spent a lot of time in the Middle East that um, in one of the places that this really became apparent to me was in the museum in Istanbul. And you go in there, and there's these artifacts from, from you know, way back, you know, four, 6,000 years, all, you know, because the Middle East, so much of civilization started from the Middle East, and you look at these artifacts, and they're intricate and wonderful and marvelous. You think, well, now wait a minute, that wasn't cavemen that produced produce those. These were people who came out fully functional, fully alive, fully intelligent, and so on. And so we are actually devolving instead of a, you know, as we are descending instead of ascending, in a sense. But it's just to say that um, the, our secular worldview says we ascended from apes. And when you look at the evidence and look at what really uh, you know, what really took place, that is simply not true. We came out of, from the get-go, mankind came out, uh, were created with, with all kinds of incredible abilities and talents, and so on. So, Adam and Eve then, the first thing they did when, um, when they fell, when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that they sowed fig leaves. They became ashamed of who they were and what they'd done, and they sowed fig leaves. And this is very interesting to me, that God comes along and God says, I'll make skins for you. I will clothe you. I will provide for you. And so here they had everything that they needed in the garden, um, everything provided for them, and they reject God, say, oh no, we don't want that, and God turns right around again and blesses them and provides for them. I mean, you know, what kind of God is that that does that? Now, some people say that this is the start of animal sacrifice. And uh, that mankind were vegetarians up to this time, and then this started uh, the whole, you know, when God had to kill animals in order to clothe them, that that started meat, uh, you know, meat eating. Um, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that God was making provision for Adam and Eve, preparing them for the more difficult life outside of the garden. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So it says that they took of, in uh, verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
And so God wanted to make sure that they would not then live in this state of sinfulness forever. So there's five concepts on what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. And we haven't really talked about that yet, so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. One of those is that what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents is the consequences of disobeying. Okay? So it wasn't anything to do with the fact that it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's just that it is symbolic of their... Uh, of their t making a bad choice and disobeying God. Um, it's a description of the consequences of obeying or disobeying the commandments. Man would know good and evil by taking the forbidden fruit. That's the idea of it. And I, I like this, uh, you know, this explanation uh, to an extent. The tree itself had no properties to bring about death. That's what it's saying. Um, second view is that it is moral discernment. Uh, that they, in taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they um, were, um, would know right from wrong. And of course, what we say is, but wait a minute, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to um, acquire a, an ability to distinguish between right and wrong? So I don't particularly like that view. Uh, third view that some people uh, say is that it's sexual knowledge. Um, but again, that's saying that sex is wrong. And sex is not wrong. Sex, in, 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 in the limits in which it's given, sex is a good thing. Others say it's, they would acquire, by taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would acquire omniscience. But of course, that's not, you know, we have to reject that because um, only God is omniscient. And then the last is, that when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were taking of man-centered wisdom. Uh, so I kind of like the, the first one and this one combined, that it's a wisdom that exalts man and comes from the natural man, natural human wisdom. So when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were taking of natural kinds of wisdom. They disobeyed God, and they were left to their own human um, <coughs> wisdom. And what they did was to prefer human wisdom to divine law. They preferred, preferred autonomy to obedience to God. So, again, we've mentioned this before. Uh, we, don't, we don't necessarily think that it was an apple tree. We don't know what it was. That's the way it's usually represented. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the point is that they were partaking, they were doing what God asked them not to do. And so they fell into sin. And the result is that they found death. And I ran across an article this week uh, written by a, actually a fellow head, a seminary professor I had. I uh, liked him really well. Um, and he says that when, when we talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said it's a, what's called a merism. I'd never heard that term before. Any of you ever heard that term? Anyway, but what it, what it represents is that a merism is an expression of totality by the mention of polarity. Okay, now that doesn't make much sense to you until we give you some examples. Uh, what it means is this, that the knowledge of good and evil is we, we talk about the two extremes, and what really is, is meant by it is it's the knowledge of everything. And the point is that there's certain knowledge that we should not have. That, that, that it will destroy us. And so when God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, he put a tree in that would destroy us. And that's the problem with sin. The problem with sin is that it destroys us from the inside out. So, um, other examples of, of merism is peace to the far and peace to the near. In other words, peace to everyone. Uh, going out, where it says the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, meaning the Lord will take care of everything in your life. 
So the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then means it's the knowledge of every kind of thing, all sorts of things, everything. And they were not ready and we are not ready to know everything, especially evil. The idea is that they had more, they had knowledge, more knowledge than they could morally handle. That was the problem. Because some knowledge destroys us, isn't that true? Some things we just simply shouldn't know. And I mean, we are kept from knowing those things. I mean, you know, with your kids, we do the same thing. There's certain things we don't tell them about until they're ready. The problem is Adam and Eve were not ready. Romans 1.17, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now the basic problem, and we're going to talk more about this later, but the basic problem here is that Adam and Eve did not trust God's character. They didn't trust God. They said, you know, we really know better, and this other Satan, you know, this serpent, knows better. And they didn't trust God. That is the whole foundation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the whole, the whole foundation of the fall of man is that they did not trust God. And so they were banished from the garden. In verse 23, so the Lord God banished him. It's interesting that it's him, not them, but banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So from now on then, life would be a struggle. That's the point of it. Tells Adam, okay, that which was easy before is now going to be difficult for you. And that's, you know, that's what we do. We spend a lot of our lives trying to work against a you know, nature which is working against us. And one commentator said it this way, and I think it's, uh, I think it's really a good theory, is that man was supposed to extend the garden. Okay? That was the original intention, was that man would work the garden and extend the garden, because we know that as soon as Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, they are banished into a place where there's thorns and thistles come up. Okay? So outside of the garden, there was... There was, um, you know, it was difficult. Thorns and thistles come up and so on. Now life is going to be more difficult because the land outside of the garden was inhospitable. Okay, it's a different kind of theory, but I, I believe it's a, it's a good one. Genesis 2, 4 through 6. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. So we know that outside of the garden then, there was, there, it, there was uh, no rain. So, it, you know, a desert or whatever you would call it. But it says in verse 6, But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So, so, outside of the garden is inhospitable territory. And so they are driven from that place in which everything was provided for them. So the, but the expulsion was not merely geographical, it was spiritual. They were driven in, not only in a place that was inhospitable, but they were driven into a place of inhospitable inhospitable spiritual climate. When they sinned, they entered into sin. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of a stupid statement. But I mean, you know, they, we, when we disobey God, we enter into sin, and it is an inhospitable place. And that's really, that's what we spend all our lives doing, isn't it? We spend our lives in an inhospitable environment, both physically but also spiritually. And it says that death was inevitable then. Spiritual death, physical death, 
every kind of death, emotional death, everything resulted from them leaving that garden. And they left because they sinned. So then it says in verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there were cherubim then. So God banishes them from the garden. And then he puts cherubim, plural. It's uh, in the Hebrew. The I am is a plural. So cherubim, we don't know how many cherubim, but probably two cherubim on each side of the, the entrance to the garden on the east side so that they would not eat from the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. The interesting thing is that we see them, the reverse of this in the book of Revelation, where again we see the tree of, the, uh, tree of life in the, um, in the, at the end of time. So what are cherubim? Cherubim are living heavenly creatures, servants of gods in theophany and judgment. Uh, so they were, they were high angels, and often they guarded things, guarded the way to God. Um, in, in Exodus 25, verses 18, following, it says this, And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Okay, now this is the Ark of the Covenant, which is placed in the holiest of holies, and God's presence would be seen, they, God would meet with them in between the wings of the cherubim, which, which were made of gold, hammered with the whole uh, ark of the, the cover for the Ark of the Covenant. And, and God would meet with them there. That was the symbol of God's presence there. Not just a symbol, but it was God's presence. God would meet with the children of Israel in between the wings of the cherubim. It said, make one cherub on one end, the second cherub on the other, make the cherubim of one piece with a cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Okay, so they, they spread their, their wings out and look toward the cover, and their wings actually touched. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, what's interesting about it is this, that God uses these cherubim in the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life, to guard the way to the presence of God. Uh, God's in that garden, okay? And so the cherubim are keeping Adam and Eve out. <coughs> but we see then, that God meets with them and the cherubim in the temple then guard the way to the mercy seat in the presence of God. So we see the cherubim guarding the way to the presence of God. And we see the same thing in the temple. Cherubim made of olive wood covered with pure gold. They guarded access to the presence of God in the most holy place. In the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. And so in the temple then, there were two cherubim in the most holy place, and those cherubim, um, you know, would guard and, and have their wings spread over the presence of God. So we see then the cherubim guarding access to the presence of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Between, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. Okay? in the temple, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark was the cherubim, were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Okay? So, so we see then, wherever we see the presence of God, the cherubim are guarding the way to the tree of life. And as I said before, we see the tree of life then showing up again in the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation chapter 22, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. 
Revelation 22:14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So interesting, we see these cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Then we see it, the same thing, in both the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple, the permanent temple, and then again shows up in the book of Revelation. Kylan Dalich, um, <clears throat> commentator, said this, God did not withdraw from the tree of life its supernatural power, nor did he destroy the garden before their eyes, but simply prevented their return. To show that it would be preserved until the end of the time of the end, when sin should be rooted out by judgment and death abolished by the conqueror of the serpent. And when upon the new earth, the tree of life would flourish again in the heavenly Jerusalem and bear fruit for the redeemed. So we see then the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life. And then this again appearing at the end of time, we see then God again restoring the tree of life. Well, the history of God is that of creating a people for himself. God's intention never changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right? And the Bible is a book that talks about the broken heart of the Father. That's what I want you to see in this. I want you to see the broken heart of the Father. As he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden... His heart is broken because those whom he had created to have fellowship with himself have now rejected him and gone their own direction and chosen autonomy over a relationship with him. And that's what the whole book, the whole Bible is about the same thing. It's about God establishing his people, the nation of Israel, And God reaching out to mankind, desiring to bless and provide for those that he loves, and mankind saying, no thanks. Now, we'll, we'll go our own direction. Thank you very much. Man seeking autonomy rather than a place of provision, a place of blessing, a place of relationship with God. Mankind has said, we don't want that. We're going our own direction. And we were talking in the Sunday school class about wickedness and, you know, the contrast of the wicked person and the, the righteous person. And the wicked, you know, says, there is no God. And I don't want a relationship with God. I'm going my own direction. They're choosing autonomy over a relationship with God. So the garden was a place of blessing and provision. The nation of Israel, God called his people to himself and said, I'm going to give you everything. And God took the nation of Israel through the, through the wilderness in order to teach them to depend upon him and to teach them that indeed he was their provider. He was the one who would bless them. Leviticus 26 says this, Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And then he goes on and talks about all the things that God is going to do for them. And then in verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And so God's intention was to create a people for himself. Bless them, provide for them, do, every, do everything for them. All he wanted was a relationship. So, God sent his own son. That was his answer. All right? There was a problem, the problem of sin in man. And God wants to gather his people into his arms. He wants to bless them, protect them, and provide for them. He wants to reverse the effects of the banishment from the garden. All right? That's what God is doing in his people. He is reversing the effects of banishment from his presence. 
And if life was more difficult when they sought autonomy for God, it will be a greater blessing when they seek reconciliation with God. You know, over Christmas and New Year's, um, we, we went to uh, went up to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, Caroline's niece had a wedding, and we went to the wedding. And so we were with a lot of unbelievers. <laughs> and we, we really spent a lot of our Christmas and New Year's, which is good. I mean, that's what we do. We spend it with families, some of whom sometimes are believers, sometimes they're not. But it, it occurred to me, and I kept thinking about how much Christ wanted to bless all of those people. He wants to bless those people in your life, that that family of yours, those people who do not know him. His intention is to bless them, provide for them, give them what they need. That's what he wants. And yet, people choose independence instead of relationship. That's the sad thing. So when we move back from the curse to the blessing from autonomy from God to dependence upon God, we also inherit the blessing which God intended us to have. We move back into a place of God's provision and God's blessing and, you know, to us. That's the whole thing. So autonomy from God means dependence upon ourselves and falling under the dominion of Satan. Sin actually wars against our very own souls. That's the problem. We are already slaves. We have to be delivered from slavery. Romans 5.15 But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, who's that? Adam. Yeah. The many died by trespass of one man, Adam. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So it's one man's obedience led to, or disobedience, led to what we see in the world today. How much more will God's grace bless those who turn to Christ? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, So with Adam and Eve then, death reigned. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So God's intention is to bless mankind. All right? Mankind rejects him. God turns right around and, provide, and provides skin for them, you know, provides covering for them. God wants to bless all those people in your family, all those people you come into contact with. God's intention is to bless them. And many times bless them through us. So God had intended for the human race that we would live in joyous intimacy with himself and that he would be our provider. That's what he wants for us. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Wow, I turn to this so many times. I go back to these verses that God wants us to, you know, we, we're weary. Now, how many are weary after spending time with a lot of unbelievers over Christmas and New Year's? I mean, it's a great time, but you get weary, don't you? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ wants to give us rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And with that rest, Christ wants to to, um, provide for us and bless us. Matthew 6.30. Again, these are some of my favorite verses. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So what, what Jesus is talking about here is that along with that relationship with God, as we move back into the garden, 
We move back into the garden. God wants to provide for us. God wants to take care of us. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food and clothing, whatever it is, God wants to bless us. God wants to provide for us. All these things will be given to you as well. So when we, through Christ, come into a deeper relationship with the Lord, we also move into dependence on the Lord for all our needs. So I believe that one of the things that God wants for us is dependence on Him. Not autonomy from Him, but dependence upon Him. Now we still have to work. All right? But even, in, even the work becomes a joy as we work in cooperation with the Lord. And instead of, instead of in opposition to the Lord, we move back into the blessing. What God wanted for the children of Israel was that they would realize that he would provide for them, would fight their battles, and would watch over them. So when we come into a relationship with Christ, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to move into that place of knowing God intimately as a father. So what God is looking for is not that we would work harder, but that we would believe in God's love, goodness, provision, and rejoice in the relationship that we have with him. That's what he wants us to do. And what God was asking is that the nation of Israel would live in loving dependence upon the Lord. He wasn't asking that they work harder, but that they would believe in his goodness. So as we study this, what God wants us to do is to believe in his, trust in his goodness and trust that he wants to bless his people. Psalm 91, 1, 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do we trust in Him? Do we trust in Him to provide for us? Do we trust in Him? That he wants to take us back into, that, into the garden, you know, not literally, physically at this point. That, that waits till the end of time. But spiritually, He wants to take us back into the garden and bless us. God wants us to trust his character, to trust that he is on our side, that he loves us, and that he knows what is best for us. So it's loving and, and trusting him that he loves us, he died for us, he wants to provide for us, he wants to bless us as a father. Christ came to take our sin, implant his spirit and nature in us so that we can become what God intended us to become. And that's God's intention for us. May the Lord bless you. New name written in glory.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the message. And we know that we are, that we are sinful people. But that, that if we come to you, the gift of your Son to forgive our sins, that we had, we had to fall from grace, Lord. But that you, uh, with your Son, the gift of your Son, all our sins could be washed away. So, Lord, we thank you for this. And we ask that, that uh, we can reduce the amount of sins that we do. We know we can never be perfect, but we can always get better. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, be with us till we meet again. Peace.